Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 228. This week, we deep dive into the open sourcing of the Windows Calculator app. We announce the winner of the Raygun contest. Azure gets smarter about reliability. And a critical flaw in the Raspberry Pi 4, but it's still faster than other computers that we discuss. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week, we have David Grohockey, Senior Program Manager at Microsoft, working in the app space, focusing on user experience and... We have another exciting guest, Howard Woloski, senior engineer at Microsoft for the past 18 years working on Visual Studio, Windows Phone, and is now working across the first-party apps built into Windows. How's it going, guys? Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah we uh, yeah, we talked to uh to both of you at uh at Build. You actually had a uh, like a an area set up where you were talking about Windows Calculator, and we found that conversation surprisingly fascinating. There's like way more to it than than people realize, and we're like, man, we we got to talk about this on the show. So we're we're pretty excited about this. And Good to be here. yeah, and Carl, you got stickers. Yes, I got stickers, and I want to hand them out. In fact, I've got a big pile that will be going out tomorrow. So if you're waiting on them, they'll be coming soon. And if you still need me to get you stickers, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com with stickers in the subject line and your name addressed in the body, and we'll mail some out to you. Yep. And then what do we have for the comment of the week? It's a special one this week. It's a special comment of the week. Uh, we've been having uh, that Raygun contest going on and it's closed. It's over. It's too late because Derek uh, uh, Schwetzel won the Raspberry Pi pack from Raygun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we already contacted him, let him know that he won. He says, wow, that's awesome. I just recently found your podcast and went back and listened to every episode. It was interesting to listen to them in a short time because you really get a feel for how our industry is changing. I do appreciate the content you put out, so keep up the good work. Yeah, that was so great. And I just want to thank everybody who entered. We had so many entries. I mean, it was that was just, man, I almost teared up because that that really was just super amazing because I was asking everybody uh, quite a bit to, you know, go enter that because that really just shows our sponsor that we have amazing listeners that, um, you know, that are listening to the things that we're, that we're saying. And, uh, so that just, that really helps us because if, if nobody enters, <laughs> then, you know, Reagan is going to be like, uh, why are we sponsoring the show? So we just, uh, we really appreciate that. And they happen to have, you know, an actual good product, which is, uh, which is really good. It was funny. Uh, there were a couple people that, uh, entered more than once, um, so, you know, shame on you. <laughs> it was, it was a good strategy though. Cause maybe, you know, maybe somebody wouldn't have been, li- been watching that, but no, those got, uh, those got filtered out. So sorry, everybody got uh, one entry to win, but, um, yeah, I was just, I was so excited to see that we had so many people, um, enter that contest and I wish I could send something to all of them. And I guess we can, <laughs> you know, if you guys, um, you know, did enter email Carl at that feedback at msdevshow.com and, and get some stickers. And this, uh, Derek, he actually lives, um, sort of near both of us. He's in uh, Wisconsin. So, um, I don't know. Sometime, uh, I'm, I'm near where he lives. I might drop off some additional 
MS Dev Show swag. So thank you, Derek, so much for uh, for entering and for and congratulations on winning. Yeah, this was by far the uh, the most people that have entered any one of our contests or giveaways or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thanks everybody who did um, sign up for this. Um, also, if you want to get mentioned on the show like Derek, send us an email to that email address we mentioned before, feedback at msdevshow.com. You could also comment on our website or on Twitter. We especially love those five-star iTunes reviews. Yes, we do. Okay, let's jump into the news because we have some, we have a variety of interesting stories. The first one here, technician keeps computer made in 1959 still humming along. That's pretty impressive because I I just actually had to turn in my laptop that was made 18 months ago because that couldn't be kept running along. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want this one from 1959 instead? um, Can you domain join this? Well, I I think I would have a little problem because this PC, it's not even a PC, uh, this computer (laughs) weighs three tons. (laughs) So um, this is in in Japan. somebody who works for uh, a subsidiary of Fujitsu mm-hmm. is keeping a, a computer around that's relay based. So, I mean, when you think about that, like every time, you know, something goes through one of those relays, you're going to hear that click and hum, which is, which is probably pretty impressive to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's controlled by electromagnets. And it was uh, the, the FACOM 128B uh, was developed by Fujitsu in 1959. Um, and prior to that, a lot of the technology at the time was used, was using vacuum tubes instead. So this was, you know, a great leap in technology for the times. Yeah. And it's, it's his job and it has been for, I think since 2006 to maintain this computer. Um, you can actually, if you're in the area in Japan, uh, take a tour and and hear it operate. It's still fully functional to this day. That is super cool. I also went down a bit of a rabbit hole here because um, I, I started <laughs> lo- looking up some additional information on this. There was a page, and we'll put this in the show notes too, but it was like comparing uh, like the first edition of this computer. There's like the A and the B, and it, it talks about it. It's kind of interesting because the B is a it's a 69-bit computer, uh, which kind of shows you. It's just kind of funny because like I remember when gaming systems, like the number of bits kind of told you like how fast it was. <laughs> Um, but you know, it, it really has nothing to do with the actual performance. It's just like what it can process at one time. And, and basically the architecture of the computer, obviously. So having 69 bits doesn't make it faster than our 64 bit computers of, of today. Um, but it was kind of interesting just looking at like the performance differences between the, the A and the B for these things. And this computer was originally used to, um, I think do the math around calculating how to develop lenses, uh, camera lenses, which was uh, which was pretty cool, and then I found this other article because I was curious as the, the the relative speed. And there's actually a page. I don't remember if we ever went over this on the on the podcast, uh, but it compares an Elliott 405, which was a similar era computer, and a Raspberry Pi Zero, which is you know just a five dollar computer uh, from 2015, which is actually I can't believe that thing's been out for four years now. But it compares things like instruction cycle time. So like the Elliott 405, uh, one instruction cycle was, uh, was between, um, was around 10 milliseconds, um, which is crazy how slow that is. Whereas the Raspberry Pi zero is one nanosecond. (laughs) Um, and then just comparing like the amounts of, of memory, um, uh, 1280 bytes versus 32 kilobytes, the memory bandwidth, 25 characters per second versus 373 megabytes per second. 
Um, and the weight difference is three to six tons compared to nine grams. So I don't know. <laughs> it's just mind blowing the difference in, in, uh, in compute power, but also is really, I think is really impressive as to such a basic, gigantic old machine and what they could actually do with it. I mean, like, I think it's, it's kind of a, it's almost a tall order today to, you know, figure out how to, um, calculate, you know, the data for, for camera lenses. I guess you'd use some, some math software for that, or maybe windows calculator, um, <laughs> but I just thought it was really impressive, like what they actually got done with the the hardware at the time. It's very cool stuff. Yeah. And they, they also mentioned that, you know, it's not just the hardware difference, but it, it ran a different operating system style. And that was totally different than what we use with semiconductor chips. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was also a comment on there that he couldn't even understand the words on the design drawings when he was first tasked with maintaining it. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um. Okay. Any other comments on that? It kind of just reminds me of the old light bulb that has been kept going right. in that uh, fire station. Yeah. I think it's over 100 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, hope, hopefully this computer keeps going. Yeah, exactly. Before before planned obsolescence of light bulbs. Yeah. Uh, new U.S. bill will would ban autoplay videos and endless scrolling. Yeah, this is aimed at... Uh, you know, some of those things that lend to be dark patterns in web design and kind of suck people into using websites and uh, social media longer than maybe they would otherwise. Uh, So in addition to that, they're also uh, targeting snap streaks, uh, YouTube autoplay, uh, as well as just general video autoplaying as an effort to, you know, decouple you know some of today's youth from just sitting there and being on social media all day long and and public websites um i think some of these are are definitely when viewed from that lens very uh, you know you know it's something that we don't want to encourage but at the same time you know i remember before we had endless scrolling on certain websites and it was just really frustrating to click click that button at the bottom of the page and wait for that page load. You know, mm-hmm. when we can just suck in that little bit of the data and you get that quicker refresh cycle and ha- have that auto load automatically for you, that's a nice feature, but it does come with that trade off that it, you know, you might spend more time uh, on Facebook, on Twitter than you might normally otherwise. Yeah. And I, I don't know how much context there is in, in this bill. I mean, there's, Oh, there's probably zero context. Yeah. I mean, just outlawing like that type of feature and the autoplay videos, I think is that's, that's crazy. Um, at the same time, like I'm definitely these dark patterns. I, it's just so, there's so much evil now, like in everything, everything is like so deceptive and trying to trick you. So I sort of appreciate the the sentiment of like trying to fix that, but I don't, I don't know how you actually do that. This seems like seems like premature. I don't, I don't know. I think this would get ignored or it would just be used incorrectly and people would find other ways around it. I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you solve this problem though. I think it's also kind of a problem given that so much of the internet is uh, international. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't exactly know how, how they would plan to enforce this across the world. Like certainly, certainly they're focusing right now on Facebook and Snapchat it looks like, and maybe a couple other social media sites that happen to be U.S. centric, but there are many other websites that employ similar tactics that are not based in the U.S. And I don't know exactly how they would plan to enforce that. 
I wonder if they if they count on it being similar to GDPR, where basically, hey, if it's an American citizen, then we need this enforced, and then everybody, all, you know, all the websites just say, oh, well, that's such a big audience, we're just going to do this for for everybody in the world, you know, if that's if that's what happens, and then the actual and, and maybe even slightly less like GDPR, but more like that European cookie warning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This site uses cookies to blah, blah, blah. Oh my God. That is so annoying. Yeah. That I'm just was worrying was about, uh, my Netflix binges. Uh, I kind of like the autoplay and Netflix. So I want to keep going to the next episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Netflix too. I mean, it, it will after a while be like, are you still there? You know, which I'm guessing is self-serving because they're trying to, <laughs> I don't think that's a user experience thing. I think they're trying to like not waste bandwidth. Um, cause I know at least up until recently, I don't know if this has changed, but YouTube doesn't do that. And I think I've mentioned on the show before, but I've, um, we've left for like a weekend and came back and here, like our Roku was, even though the TV was off, it had been playing auto playing YouTube videos <laughs> for like three days straight. So, um, yeah, exactly. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Probably nothing. Um, and then speaking of small computers, like we were talking about earlier, uh, Raspberry Pi admits to faulty USB-C design on the Pi 4. Ouch. Yeah, so where, where this will actually bite you is there's certain kinds of chargers that because they didn't implement the spec properly, that certain USB-C chargers won't work. And that can be a real pain um, if you're trying to like reuse a, a cell phone charger or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they actually, you know, very simply, you know, didn't implement the spec exactly as they should have. They were trying to, I, I don't know if they were trying to do a cost optimization or if they were just trying to save time development, but by them not doing that, there's a certain class of USB-C chargers that when you plug them in, um, won't work with these. Yep. Um, they'll actually uh, get detected as an audio adapter accessory. Oh, and re- refuse to charge. Yeah, it sounds like the Nintendo Switch has the same has the same type of of issue. I mean, too bad. Like for for the Raspberry Pi, I mean, I I don't know why they don't do like some kind of beta testing. Um, did they, I mean because when they released the specs, they also were taking orders. So obviously, you know, they were like past the point of no return. So they're they're going to fix it in the next revision. But like the damage is already done. I'm wondering if like a month ago they could, you know, before they started production, they could have maybe released those plans. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, I, I don't know, I guess I don't know much about the, the background, you know, like the company behind it or anything like that. Um, but I, you know, I think it's a, I think they're just trying to provide like low cost computing. And I, I don't, I don't know who they're really competing with. I don't know why they can't just be open about this stuff and re- release that and just say, Hey, everybody like look for bugs. If you see something like, let us know. Cause this, this got caught in a schematic. It wasn't even that like yep. somebody bought one and plugged in the wrong cable. So I wonder if they're yeah, going to change their process going forward. Yeah. There's two pins on the USB C that are each supposed to get their own resistor and they're actually sharing a resistor and yeah. that's what ended up getting caught. So mm-hmm. it also shows that whoever did find this by use of a schematic, like, really knew what they were doing and really knew what that USB-C mm-hmm. spec called for. Yeah. I was yeah. going to mention that um, I, I would have, I would have thought uh, they should have like run it by uh, Benson Lung or something like that uh, uh, before releasing it. And then I started glancing at the article and he actually chimed in on this too. Uh-huh. Um, Benson um, uh, for a long time had been doing uh, USB-C analysis across all the accessories that were coming yeah. out because he kept finding so many different um 
uh, USB chargers or cables that were just completely non-compliant and could even break your device. And eventually, one actually did end up frying his laptop. Ouch. Um, uh, but yeah, so um, I don't think he keeps track of it anymore, but... Um, he used to, the people formed like spreadsheets tracking all of his analysis about like which accessories were valid and which were not. And I've used that in the past to figure out like uh, what chargers and cables to buy and which to avoid. And it yeah. looks like he saw the same problem. Yeah. USB-C was supposed to be the savior, like one cable, one charger, one everything to rule them all. And man, what a disappointment. I mean, this is I mean, we're like switching everything over to USB-C and this is, this is such a disappointment. So, okay. Um, advancing Microsoft Azure reliability. Yeah, this is a great blog post by Mark Rosinovich, uh, the CTO for Azure. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some really cool, this is a very dense blog post with some really cool information. So first and foremost, over the, the previous year, Azure from its global infrastructure, uh, has averaged 99.995 uptime across all of that. So you look, there's more than 50 data centers and there's, you know, I don't even know how many, but well over a hundred different services. And for all of those services and all those data centers, that's the kind of uptime, um, that's been realized over 12 months, which is, to be honest, pretty amazing. If I were in charge of that, I can guarantee you it would not be nearly that high. <laughs> um, I agree. But, you know, there has been a few public, very public outages that, you know, even though you have that uptime, you might have been hit by one of these different outages. And, um, you know, I think the impetus of this was, you know, even though that is a pretty good uptime, it's not good enough for what Azure is trying to offer. And he's outlining in a public way, you know, how is Azure going to become even more reliable? Um, so... Not going to go through all of these, but I think some of the later ones were pretty interesting. So there's going to be an expanding of availability zones. Today, there's 10 in the 10 largest regions. Over the next year to two years, it's going to be uh, you're, they're bringing availability zones to the next largest 10 Azure regions. Um, at Build, there is the announcement of par- uh, Project Tardigrade. And Tardigrades are these tiny microscopic animals that... Uh, can survive in these crazy conditions, like even in the vacuum of space. Or the mycelial Um, network. Yep. And they're taking, uh, you know, that concept of being able to look at VMs and detecting when they're about to have a failure and actually swap you to a good machine mid-process, which is crazy um, when you think about what that would take to do that. Um, And one that... Um, I thought was really cool was uh, low to zero impactful maintenance. You know, as these individual services like app service or uh, blob storage or something gets an upgrade, they're going to be doing these uh, with hot patches, live migrations, in place migrations on all of these services. And um, it sounds like more and more of the Azure services are going to be required to do this going forward, that which means that you're not going to have downtime and you'll still be able to get all the latest and greatest. Um, and the last one that I, th- I, I thought was interesting, and as I re- reread it, I picked out a few more things, was fault injection and stress testing. Fault injection is like the the chaos monkey from Netflix. We remember that from a few years ago where you purposely introduce failures into a system to see how you can react to them. And we had an episode. Um, right now it mentioned, 
Yep. Uh, right now, uh, that's currently happening in, in private Azure testing environments, and they're going to start rolling those out uh, to a larger, more global scale. But I think the, the key piece that I missed initially in here is it says, our plan is to eventually make these fault injection services available to customers so that they can perform the same validation on their own applications and services. And I think that's been, that's really cool because I've heard a bunch of people ask for that thing, you know, it's, you know, can one of the cloud providers help me with, uh, these fault injection mm-hmm. so I can make sure that my services are as fault tolerant as, uh, the system that it's running on. Yeah. I wonder if Charles Tor is involved in that at all. He was the one that we had on for the, that would be really the, cool for that episode. So I haven't talked to him in a while. I wonder if he's, uh, if he's part of that. This is super cool though. This, this, this team that was put together, just kind of taking, you know, a look at all of this from another aspect. Um, this, this just really shows the maturity of, of Azure. And I would say, you know, obviously the, uh, the other cloud providers, um, well, I would say probably like Google and AWS are, they probably have something similar. I would, I would think maybe, um, but the, but the whole point is that like all of these platforms are getting to a, a new level of maturity where it's like the, the tolerance for any kind of downtime is, uh, much lower, even though we're getting better at building applications that are more fault tolerant, it's best to have both. Like my application should be able to deal with failure and I should just not have any failure. Uh, both of those things are, uh, are useful. And I, I don't think you caught my reference there with the mycelia network, Carl. That's a, that's a Star Trek reference. So <laughs> yes, there, there's a bunch of, uh, Star Trek references over the last couple of days that I've missed. <laughs> yeah. You got to watch discovery. So it's really good. Um, any any comments from from you guys on that? Uh, I've been really impressed with what uh, uh, Mark has been doing with mm-hmm. Azure since he took over. Yeah. Um, uh, and but I don't think I have anything specific on those topics. Yeah. I, I yeah. just it's just impressive how much they keep um, what they keep adding on top of it. It's becoming like a really a big force to reckon with. Absolutely. In cloud computing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, Carl, alternative big O notations. I, I really like this. This should be really quick, but uh, big O notation is just a way to analyze, you know, a piece of code to understand like how quickly and complex it is and how fast it'll run. Uh, so for those that are familiar, O of one means that it takes one operation to get your result back. And um, in this case, all of these different um uh, standard big O notations are kind of mapped to a funny one that's also very descriptive of, you know, how good it is. So O of one equals O of yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. O log n equals o, o of nice. O n log n equals O of okay-ish. Uh, o of n is O of okay. O of n squared is oh my. Uh, o two to the n is oh no. <laughs> o of n to the n is O f expletive. <clears throat> And O N factorial is OMG. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So I thought it was cute. Um, We will have the link in the show notes. If you would just want to see it because I ran through that pretty quick, man. Why did I even go to college? Like this, (laughs) (laughs) this is, this is what I learned of of college right there. summarized in a nice (laughs) little chart. Cliff Nose version of college computer science course. (laughs) And then the last one here, I think we can go through real quick, but the, the book of news, uh, for build 2019, this is always a useful publication. 
Yep. I, we've been sitting on this uh, a little bit. We, uh, for most of Microsoft's uh, larger events, they have what's called the book of news. And uh, we've been using this one to kind of get some of our information of what happened at Build 2019. But since this is our last uh, Build-inspired episode, uh, we thought we'd put it out there so everybody can have a, a chance to kind of go through it. It highlights all of the the big announcements and all of the small announcements are actually kind of peppered throughout there too. It's very mm-hmm. easy to read and get a high level of understanding with links to click into for more details. Yep. Some of the things that, that um, just sort of commenting on the whole document overall, um, I think one takeaway, it's the same as kind of what I was talking about with Azure, but basically everything across the board is really maturing because a lot of these things are not new. They're just, you know, maturing features of, of other products, which is great. Like I know it, it, it can be a little boring, but stability is boring, right? But stability is still good. Uh, that's something we all want. Yeah. We, we want things to be stable. Yeah. One thing that, that's like really impressing me lately is .NET. I think it's getting much more appealing now with like Blazor, ML.NET, and some of these other things. Um, you know, I've, I've been sort of a TypeScript person for a while, but um, I don't, .NET just, it keeps kind of pulling me back in and, and you know, I still know it pretty well. So um, I keep thinking about writing something new in, in .NET now that it, I mean, it just has so many capabilities and now this cross platform. And I mean, there's like almost no reasons not to go that route if you know .NET these days. Um, and then another thing that I know we've talked about before, but this, the VS code remote connectivity um, to me is still a huge feature. Oh, that's or, awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, it's about running like a Linux container or a Linux container in Docker and being able to connect to that on my machine, like to, to have just a an isolated development environment. To me, that that's huge um, to be able to do something like Python. It's funny because I actually reinstalled uh, the operating system on my Mac. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do that was because I ended up like trying to upgrade Python at one point. And, you know, like it, the whole system was like basically all of Python was screwed up and there's just no way to get it back to the way it was. Um, so it's like, okay, I never want to do Python again, um, unless I'm in like this contained environment where I'm not going to mess everything up. And then the last thing that, uh, that I actually, the, this document just reminded me of, uh, in regards to visual studio was the announcement of online.visualstudio.com, which was basically a web-based version of visual studio. Um, that's still not up yet. Um, so, you know, I guess I'm, I don't know who I'm calling out on that, but, um, I'm going to see if I can get an update on, on what the heck is going on with that. Um, cause I've been excited about that. I, I think that is interesting for, especially for like, uh, I know it sounds kind of weird, but like development on an iPad, um, if you can, if you can actually sit there and, and basically use an online version of uh, visual studio code, that's pretty cool. So that, that just gets more developers able to, to use, um, you know, visual studio. So. Yeah. And especially when you look at like a lot of educational environments, Mm -hmm. a lot of times they're running on uh, either crazy low performance PCs, Chromebooks, or they're just in a, in a managed situation where you can't install software. And a lot of the tools that they are working with are online based ones. So if VS code is running in a browser, that just brings that whole ecosystem of what you can develop on uh, available to that set, that whole segment of the education system as well. Yeah. The Chromebook examples. Yeah. Like you said, is another good one. Any final comments or should we move on to our topic of the day? 
Okay, let's move on. So (laughs) (laughs) we're talking about Windows Calculator, which is actually pretty amazing when you start to dive into it. So I guess my first question is like, why, why was Windows Calculator open sourced? Uh, I can try to summarize that. It might take a couple minutes. There's some backstory there. Sure. Um, so, uh, about, about four, four years ago, four and a half years ago, um, a team was formed within Microsoft to, uh, centrally, they, they kind of grabbed different people from across the company that worked on different apps to form this central application development team that was focused on trying to solve the common problems that all the other applications were having. So instead of having every team go off and try to figure out how inking works or, or maybe how to add Cortana integration um, or just how to figure out accessibility, there, we'd have this one central team figure out all the best practices, how to do things, and then they'd go out and educate the other teams just so that, it, that all the time was just um, centralized and, uh, and so other teams could just go off and focus on their apps. So uh, that team was formed, and I joined it at the time of its inception. And then a couple of months in, uh, in addition to owning all the best practices and trying to fix the build system, we were given a bunch of apps. Uh, and so we started doing all those things on our, on our apps first as test beds and, uh, and then started passing those learnings along. And so one of the things that one of the first things that we, that our team really focused on was fluent. So when fluent was getting created, uh, by the developer platform, we worked really closely with them to integrate it into all of our applications with windows calculator being, um, the focus point and, uh, all the all that that close working relationship ironed out a lot of problems that were initially identified, and so once we had it all working in Calculator, we went out and educated the other first party app teams how to add it add it into their own application. And so we were, our team was com- coming up with all these best practices, and and we we're also coming up with all these toolings um, to help out. One of them was um, this project I worked on called Storebroker, which is used to. Um, automate deployment of applications to the Windows Store. And so that's widely used um, across, in, inside Microsoft to just uh, have nightly builds get flighted out to the Windows Store. And um, over time, I, I started pushing that we should open source that because there's no, like, the, the same problem that Microsoft was having in terms of how expensive and, prob- and time-consuming it was to get those things deployed on an automated basis that's the same problem that external developers were having too. So over over time, we got that open sourced, and then I started looking at, uh, well, everything else that we're doing, um, whether it's figuring out accessibility or localization or fluent design language or how to get um, automated testing to working or store de- store deployment. All these problems were the same problems that we're educating internal developers about. And external developers, external Windows developers were having the same problems. So I started pushing, why don't we try open sourcing uh, uh, one of our apps so that uh, uh, the, the Windows developers can, can learn from what we're doing with a real example, like a, a real product that we're actually shipping, as opposed to all these one-off code examples that code samples I seem to get released um, with a new version when a new API comes out, but it's just a, a very small like example of how to do this one thing with an API, and it's not necessarily a sample that's maintained over years. Um, and so um, that conversation started hmm, probably two years ago, 
And there's a lot of, lot of back and forth talking and, and investigation I needed to do and, until eventually we got to the point where we got approval. Um, and so, uh, and so calculator, we had to do a lot of prep work once we got that, that approval, but we finally launched in May of this year. But yeah, the, the main point, I think I would say it's less about, it's less about it being Windows, uh, the specific app Windows calculator and more about it being, um, an enterprise quality example of how to do Windows development. And it, like, if, if there's any kind of question that you want, you're trying to answer regarding Windows development, um, it should hopefully already be answered. Well, that's how you do it because this is how Windows Calculator is doing it. Whether again, like whether it's localization, accessibility, fluent design, um, uh, testing. Now we have both unit tests and UI automation going on there in there, um, automatic store deployment, um, uh, and a host of other things. Um, we have this one concrete example, and it's not overly complicated, so you can you can kind of dive into the code and get the answers that you need. Raygun provides full-stack error, crash, and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full-stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes dramatically improve the online experience of your users. Yeah, we're we're talking about calculator today, but you know, one of the things that you know, as you're talking about like these other inbox apps that are part of this, what what other what what are the names of some of those other apps that are going through the same process that calculator started? So uh right now we I mean we started with calculator uh for a number of different reasons. Um has Pretty broad reach. It's uh, a good, uh, simple app from in, in many in many respects. Um, I don't want to speak to how many uh, actual users use Calculator, but you can you can imagine it's a fair uh, fair percentage of of overall Windows users. Right now, we're focused on learning from projects like Calculator and Terminal and, and the new Chromium-based Edge um, to to see uh, how the community responds and whether we're able to um, kind of use these projects as an example of of, of you know Microsoft technologies, um, and we're sharing those lessons with other app teams, um, uh, so, so they can consider uh, going open as well. But I do think um, like one that that went open. Uh, oh, we, we went open in March. I said yeah. May. Uh, in May, uh, Windows Terminal went open, uh, open source, mm-hmm. um, and that's super super exciting. And there's been a lot of uh, enthusiasm around that one too. So um, that's not a uh, Windows terminal is not one that we own, uh, but um, they're a team that we've worked uh, closely with quite a bit over the past few months as we've been um, uh, trading our the, our approaches towards how we're handling open source, so that we can just um, uh, so that our teams can just improve how we how we're doing it overall, and that, and we've we'd actually been having a lot of discussions with um, with teams just across the company that are kind of looking at what we're doing and trying to see if that makes sense and trying to understand what the impact it's been it's, it's had on, on our team since we've gone open um, both positive and negative um, but they've been really really interesting conversations that's great yeah because you know I, I think you know a lot of people fail to realize like how many small tiny applications are just bundled in there um, you, you have like the bigger or more well-known ones like calculator notepad and stuff like that but you know I'm even thinking of like the the 
there's a new update to the snip. So there's a new application for that or the character map, which in my mind could use a lot of fluent love. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's just, I mean, so many tons of useful applications that, I mean, like you said, they're, they're small, they're well architected. There are, you know, like, you know, Microsoft has been putting so much in open source. So it would be great to see those have some community support as well. I agree. Like, I think it'd be great to have, um, to have more, more of these experiences available to the public. Um, uh, but, um, every team needs to kind of, uh, figure out what's going to make sense for them given their priorities. Because, uh, I think what's, I think what's become increasingly important that Microsoft has been seeing is that we can't, we don't, just putting source code out there for an application um, isn't, does isn't going to work. You really, you know, we really need to do is create a community and be engaging with them and being active with them and and going back and forth in order to have this, to have this community that you're that you're creating with and. Um, and there, there is a cost to that. There's a, a, a time and energy cost to that. And not every team is necessarily able to afford that. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, you know, this is just a simple calculator app. Like I could make one of these in like 15 minutes. So um, how hard could all this be? <laughs> like, so, you know, I, I say that sort of jokingly, but I'm sure there's, you know, people that are like, well, what the heck could possibly be in there? So like, how complicated is this? Dave? Uh, yes. So uh, one thing that kind of surprises me is that a lot of users don't realize how many different modes that calculator has. Mm-hmm. Um, you open up calculator, it enters standard mode, um, but we also have scientific mode, programmer mode, which has some programming uh, functionality, uh, date calculator, and then a whole number of uh, unit converters, including currencies. Um, so there's actually quite a bit of functionality that uh, a lot of users uh, don't take uh, full advantage of, um, w- which we're quite excited about. Um, there's also uh, some technical um, uh, complexities. Uh, the calculator engine itself is an infinite precision engine, um, which I'll let Howard speak to a little bit more. Um, but that code is actually uh, f- fairly old, um, um, but there's a number of benefits that it provides uh, o- over a lot of the calculators you might find in the store or online. Yeah, I mean, I think the the really simplified version of that is um, it it will use uh, uh, it takes advantage of the amount of memory that you have on your system to provide the most accurate possible um, calculation that's that could be there, um, as opposed to just using um, uh, some standard library math, which will give you um, which will approximate the answer to a much smaller degree uh and so as for i don't have the backstory as to um what the impetus was for why we switched over to using um, an infinite precision uh engine just because that at this point that's been around um i i think we've had it in this in the source code since the 90s wow uh uh the infinite precision well um, and, and even things it, like it, if you do like one divided by three times three like you get back one i mean that, that kind of thing is useful as well i don't know if that falls under infinite precision but you know there's like those kinds of like that's not even really an edge case i mean that's just like something that somebody might not think of right off the top of their head right and then um another thing to add on to that is uh kind of a similar question is well what can you do with calculator um i kind of went into some of the different functionality it already has. 
Um, but um, if you take a look at the repo, um, we've been blown away by the number of feature requests that um, the community has been uh, chiming in with. Um, a, a couple things. I mean, we, we already uh, talked about the. Um, there's a just just now just got checked in the ability to pin calculator on top of other windows. Mm-hmm. It's uh, been a long time request from our users, both in Feedback Hub and on GitHub. Uh, so we're pretty excited about that going into master just yesterday. Um, we're also exploring adding a graphing calculator, um, which is an entirely new mode. Uh, oh, really? To calculate. It's going to help a lot for students um, uh, in, in, ma- in math classes. That's um, awesome. And then there's a number of other awesome ideas coming in from the community. Um, for example, uh, re- reverse Polish notation, so in our RPN input mode. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize how... Uh, how much enthusiasm there was for that feature <laughs> until someone suggested it. And now I notice it everywhere on Twitter and in, in comments on blogs. I had to explain uh, what that one meant to a, a bunch of the younger folks on the team. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember using RPN in, in programming classes or yep. just learning about it then. Exactly. Um, there's uh, some, some ideas about a, a pace converter. Uh, so, so runners can, can figure out what, um, what time they need to run their race in to hit, to hit a certain uh, goal. Um, there's um, ideas about improving how we handle converters. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a very interesting set of ideas that um, that we, we've had a lot of fun reviewing and um, kind of moving forward um, in development. So, how does your team handle when uh, either new feature requests or new pull requests come in with these kinds of features? Uh, that's changed over time. Uh, we had a we had a, a pretty a pretty rough launch in terms of that because I think we we weren't quite prepared for the volume of of suggestions and uh, and PRs that were going to come in. So um, at this point, um, we don't take we don't accept PRs of uh, for any new features that ha- haven't already had an issue that's been opened and discussed and approved. Um, that. Um, and large part, that's because we really want to make sure that no one is uh, wasting their time or spending spending so much of their, of their valuable time working on something that either uh, we just know isn't going to be a, the right fit, or that we think is really gonna, um, we're going to have to ha- like really think through the the design and how things are going to work before um, before we'd actually want to proceed with implementation. Um, and so that that's been a dramatic change because we didn't have that in place when we first launched. Um, uh, but uh, and Dave's introduced um, a pretty rigorous process in terms of how we're now handling those those incoming feature ideas. Yeah. So so something we we are trying to do is we we want to balance um, uh, making it really easy for for folks of any experience level to contribute these these cool feature ideas um, with uh, maintaining a really really high quality bar. And um, ensuring that the experience is um, something that works for all types of users. As you can imagine, there's uh, you know calculators used by developers, it's used by students, used by teachers, by grandparents, um, and these different types of users have different expectations and and um, technical abilities. Uh, so a complex feature that uh, might go over great with um, you know the majority of the community members on GitHub. Uh, might be really confusing if my mom or dad tried to use that feature. Um, so we have this uh, kind of feature development process in place uh, so we can um, 
uh, encourage and, and kind of kind of shepherd through uh, discussions and, and features through um, from ideation um, all the way through to implementation and then shipping it. Very cool. So you mentioned that you don't take a PR in, unless there is like an, an open issue. Um, but for the, for the most part, for at least at least for new features, uh, yeah. we have still been taking them for what we consider just uh, code health or code improvement. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I was wondering if there were any interesting like community patches that you have gotten like weird bugs or like, you know, just anything that you thought was really interesting. Uh, there's there's a, a pretty, I think, uh, wide gamut for that. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the um, one of the first PRs that came in uh, was someone. Um, uh, let, me, let me see if I can find it. Uh, because I think even his title was was kind of funny. Uh, uh, well, he was he was trying to oh okay make this app immune against any exploit. <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, this is gonna be really fascinating. Yeah, we should uh, add that feature to everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and his PR just deleted the whole uh, repo. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's so one that, that solution. Yep. Uh, uh, we've had um, there have been. Um, a couple, uh, a couple devs that have been really interested in. So, if you think about the the calculator as like a, a really yummy layer cake, that bottommost layer would be the calc engine, and the calc engine um, doesn't isn't really there isn't anything about it that needs to be Windows specific, except the fact that it was, it's been developed by Windows engineers for well over twenty years, and so there are um, there are some. Um, Microsoft C specific stuff in there that are not standard C, but uh, beyond those, there's nothing specific about Windows on it. And so there've been um, there because it has that infinite precision engine, which is really interesting to some folks. People have been coming in and slowly chipping away at making the Calc Engine cross-platform, which Ooh. I think is like super interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so I mean that's been a, a they've been working on that now since uh, since March, um, uh, and I think they're make, they're making good progress. Um, and I know, I think at least one of them is in school. I know at least one of them's in school because he's had to take breaks every once in a while from what he's been doing to get back to schoolwork. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's been really interesting to follow. Uh, um, and another another interesting one, which which I think is great too, um, someone went and like analyzed the the formatting style that we've been using in the code base, and and they spent a, quite a bit of time to create a, a Clang format file that accurately represented pretty for the most part um the our intended um uh style philosophy mm-hmm. and by having that we that can mostly avoid a lot of uh, uh style comment feedback uh comments um during any P, uh, prs uh then we can just really just focus on the implementation so we don't really need to worry so much that it's it's adhering to the rest the way the rest of the projects run yeah makes sense uh, from an issue side, I think we've seen a number of really interesting issues come in. Yeah, um, I already talked about some of the features that we are kind of moving through the process. Um, as you can imagine, there's there's so, some ideas that that you know don't make it through uh, for one reason or another. Um, either it's uh, not something that would meet the the needs of the, the kind of the typical user, or uh, maybe it's uh, just doesn't you know fit fit in with the product. Um, one idea that comes to mind um, is uh, somebody researched uh, the use of uh, abacuses 
in um, I think particularly in Asian regions, <laughs> and um, it was it was just really interesting to 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 learn more about the abacus. We ended up not moving forward with it, but it was a, a pretty thoroughly researched uh, feature pitch. Um, but unfortunately, I don't. We're going to be seeing an abacus mode. Um, in calculator anytime soon. Okay. Yeah, so that one was interesting because when I first came in, um, it didn't really have too much data, and uh, we just we really just thought it was a troll, um, <laughs> and so and so we said uh, that's interesting, but uh, can you provide us um, some more more details? And they delivered. And then and then they delivered. <laughs> so it was it was either someone who really really was. Um, uh, Gung ho about Abigus mode or a really, really invested troll. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but either way, it, it was an impressive feature pitch. That's pretty cool. So, how do I actually like tweak this and build it? Um, can I do all that on my own system? Uh, yeah. Um, we, ha- uh, we have uh, pretty much all you need to do is install um, the community edition of uh, Visual Studio 2019, then clone the project, and that's it. Just uh, open the project up and build it, and you can d- deploy. Um, there, it's really as simple as that. And we have, we have a couple pictures, or screenshots uh, in the repo to help you through those steps in the event that you get stuck. This sounds like a great way to do a prank because I can basically make a new version of Calculator and get it onto Carl's computer, and then I can mess with him. <laughs> you could uh, uh, one one of the one of the there. What we have in the project is. I'd say 99% of what's shipped. Uh, we've there are a couple differences. Uh, we've swapped out the icons, and so the icon that uh, the icons that are inside the repo are the developer version of a calculator. It's a very similar paradigm to what VS Code does. Okay. So, um, so uh, Carl Carl would uh, see the, at least a slightly different logo if he did that. Or it would be a little bit longer for Jason to copy out those. Yeah, icons. I was gonna say I can, I can handle that. <laughs> a, slight, a slight hurdle. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to add that um, code contributions are one way of contributing to the project, um, but we welcome contributions from everyone in the repo itself. If you have an idea, um, but maybe are not as familiar with uh, C plus we, we welcome you to uh, file bugs or, or or create new feature pitches. Um, we look at those regularly, and um, that's another great way to contribute to the project. Yeah, I, uh, that's a really good point. Um, uh, I ran um, I ran a tool last night uh, to spit out a bunch of numbers around um, what the community has been doing. Um, and while we have, what was it, uh, 78 different people outside of Microsoft have created um, – have, have created over 194 PRs, um, but uh, like okay, 85 different people have actually been commenting on them. So there have been a bunch of different people that have been uh, have been doing um, uh, uh, code reviews and, uh, an- and design analysis on other people's PRs beyond just submitting their own. And we've seen an even bigger uptake on issues. So. While there have been 126 different people outside of Microsoft that have been creating issues, um, twice that number have been actually commenting on those issues and expanding those ideas and refining them. So it's really been interesting to see that engagement. So people don't have to be coming to the repo with um, the ability to code or with new ideas. Um, they can just be coming into there and, and making other people's ideas even better. Um, it's been really, really interesting to see. 
Yeah, and I know there's at least uh, a few contributors out there. Um, I think I saw them on Twitter um, <clears throat> who are not as experienced in um, in C plus plus, but this project motivated them to kind of get back into it and and to take another look, um, which is also really exciting to see. This is super cool. I I love that there's a a great community built around this. That's just that's awesome to see. Yeah, I think um, you were asking earlier about um, any other surprising things that have come in. And uh, one thing that, that comes to me, uh, someone came uh, identified that they were from, I think it was South Korea. Um, and in South Korea, there is a specific unit of measurement that's only specific there called, I think, it's Pyong. I think it's the Pyong, yeah. 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 Uh, and we, so, and like Dave said earlier, I think we have 17 converters um, within within the app. And so... Apparently, there's there have been a number of people that have uh, there that have wanted to be able to convert either to or from that unit of measurement and haven't yeah. been able to because we just had no idea it even existed, and so they identified it and then uh, we said, oh, that's a great, that, yeah, someone should add that, and then they went and they added it. That's which cool. I, which I mean, that kind of thing is I think just fantastic because. Um, we we certainly don't we don't purport to know everything that's out there or the right way that everything should be done and um, having people come in and just inform us I think has been really really helpful. Yep. And then I noticed, yeah, yeah I noticed that the the calculator app is in the store then too. So was that too? You know, to me that that sounds like it enables these out of band updates. You know, so you you add this new format um, and then you're able to push it out into the store like rather quickly. Is that is that why that happened? Yes, yeah, so, so uh, calculator ships with Windows, um, and it still ships with Windows. I know there's been some confusion about that um, online and in comments. Um, it still ships with Windows, <clears throat> um, and we do ship updates through the store as well. Um, we've been shipping updates, uh, I think, to, to calculator since back back to Windows 8. Um, so that's just our way to, of being able to kind of continuously deliver um, new, new features and bug fixes to users, um, even out of band from the OS. Um, so it's a, it's... It's kind of neat that a change that can go in from the community um, will, will likely ship out the next month. Um, we, we try to stick to a monthly release schedule. Um, so uh, and anything that's gone in um, in, in, the, in the last uh, couple of weeks here, including um, the, uh, the recently added always on top mode, um, um, hopefully will be uh, available to insiders uh, starting sometime next month. Super cool. And then I noticed too there was a tweet where you had like a, a compact mode as well that looked pretty cool. Yeah, so so that's what this um, uh, always on top compact mode. Keep oh, it's on all top, together. Uh, okay, however cool. you um, kind of want to refer to it, <clears throat> they're <clears throat> they're one in the same. Um, so when you enter this always on top mode, um, you have the ability to to shrink the window down um, much smaller. Um, so when you when you enter that mode, you can. Um, uh, have this kind of like nano calculator, um, okay. which which is just really convenient um, to to have always available, depending on on what else you have running. Cool. It kind of makes it like a picture in picture mode. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's the yeah. same API. Um, it's the um, exactly compact the overlay. same the compact overlay API. Um, it's the same API that uh, like Groove and movies and TV uses. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, to show that picture in picture view. Um, we're just kind of taking advantage of it um, in a slightly different way. Um, maybe not exactly what it was intended for, but um, it, 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 um, it ends up working quite nice for, for a calculator. Cool. And, and once again, this is a way, like, if somebody, like, wanted that 
functionality but didn't know how, they could go to the calculator to see how you're doing it. And now they would see how to use that picture-in-picture mm-hmm. API for their use case. Exactly. exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Um, anything else that you wanted to uh, to cover? This is all great stuff, but I wasn't sure if there was any other roadmap items or, or anything that we missed. Um, I would say the, the, the next big thing that we're... Um, uh, have been continuously working towards um, is is that new graphing mode. Um, uh, we would love uh, the community feedback on on progress there, um, as, as well as any thoughts um, from any any folks who are maybe more involved in um, the EDU space. Uh, we want to make sure it's a great tool for both uh, students and teachers, um, as well as as you know the, the reg- tip- more typical uh, ca- calculator users. Um, <clears throat> so we welcome the feedback in the in the project. Yeah, if you can get that rid of the tyranny of looks like that's a pinned it, issue if you want to add to the conversation. Yeah. If if we could get rid of the tyranny of the, the TI-83, 85, 86, all those calculators, and, <laughs> and them still being $120, um, that would be uh, that would be great if we could just eliminate those. <laughs> yeah, for, for some, somehow they get to they're, – they're maintaining their price, which is, <clears throat> I think, breaking all laws of economics. It's just always been the same price. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting. Yeah. I think it's, a, it's called a monopoly. <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> Although cool. I got to say, like I had um, – a lot of my early programming was done on those calculators in high school. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I actually have one unopened because my son allegedly needed one for school. It was on the required list. And I said, well, open it when you need it. And we, we got to the end of the year and it's still unopened. So, I mean, can you imagine being a monopoly being a requirement and then not even have, having to even have your product be used? <laughs> it's pretty, you might have a math prodigy though. <laughs> that, I mean, that could, that could be the case. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Actually he is, he is doing pretty good at math. So maybe that is it. I don't know. Uh, okay. So moving on, Carl, what do you have for the dev tip of the week? Uh, here's a GitHub repo from Microsoft to help you get your windows developer box set up more quickly. Ooh. Um, is a bunch of uh, chocolatey and box starter scripts. So they've kind of collected what you need for a variety of different workloads. If you're making a desktop app, a C++ app, web, Node.js, machine learning, um, or even like a, just a DevOps app, they've got the PowerShell and or power in PowerShell scripts. They've got the uh, chocolatey box starter all packaged up with what you need to get out of the box. And if you need to kind of tweak those yourself, there's ways to do it. If you're working in a company, you're behind a VPN uh, or you can't access some of those public ones, they've got ways to help you get around that. Or if you're in education and you can't really install full things, they have ways to get you those standalone and uh, executable uh, pieces of software that will allow you to develop for those different workloads. So that's pretty cool. And it's available in our show notes at the GitHub link. That is super cool. Uh, okay. So, um, Let's let's get into uh, where people can find you. So, David, why don't you go first? Where can people find you? Uh, so, people can find me on Twitter or GitHub uh, at d uh, Krohaki, My last name. Uh, I won't spell it out. Check the show notes. <laughs> um, and then the the calculator project. Uh, an easy link to remember. It's just aka dot ms slash calculator. Oh, that's very cool. And Howard, where can people find you? Uh, on Twitter, um, at Quackfu. Howard the go. Duck was a master of quack foo. Um, <laughs> oh, I and, love that movie. <laughs> That's a classic. <laughs> uh, and on GitHub, um, it's just at Howard Woloski. 
Okay, very cool. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So guys, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about Calculator. Who, who thought there'd be so much to talk about? But it's uh, it's super cool what you guys are doing. Thanks for having us. Yep.